Hello everyone, it's July 9th, 2019. This week, Orion did its in-flight abort, so we're making progress. And a few Starlink satellites go silent, which is also progress, because it's all about working out the bugs. There's a lot of those in spaceflight, but none in space that we know of. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 218 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Dennis. And no Ben. No Ben. Ben's traveling. Oh, he's traveling? Well, he's on vacation, right? Oh, you're right. He is on vacation. I'm not even sure where he is, to be honest with you. Uh, but I think he's in uh, San Francisco, which is such an awesome city. So Yeah, I'm lucky sure him. having a good time there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure where you are, because you're on the road too, right? Yeah, yeah. I am actually in Oklahoma City right now. Uh, in uh, what's good, It's called Bricktown, the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. it is, uh, it's hip. I'm liking it a lot. It's it's like a fun little area. It's got a canal going through it with like bars and restaurants and ducks, uh, you know, swimming around in there. And so there is one really cool thing too here, uh, but actually more like outside of here. So I'm road tripping from Tucson to New Jersey to just, you know, see my folks. And so on the way in, uh, I'm coming from the West. I'm maybe about an hour outside of the city and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to pull off, uh, get a little uh, stretch break, get a cup of coffee, you know, just take a break. So I've been on the road all morning. And um, I, I pull off on this random exit and I see a sign for the Stafford Air and Space Museum. And so hmm. there is a, a space museum kind of, I guess, dedicated to Tom Stafford. And it is just it's really cool <laughs> so that's in oklahoma somewhere yeah i don't know i don't know what the town was but like i mean it, it had a lot of like artifacts which was really cool so i got to see uh the actual gemini 6a capsule itself which was behind oh, glass but every other artifact that it had wasn't behind glass so the actual like docking port for the apollo soyuz test project was there because that was him on the uh, Apollo side. And uh, so, like, yeah, that was cool. Like, because what I love to do is actually just go and, like, touch things that are famous. <laughs> <laughs> and so I yeah. gave it a little a little tap. But, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend uh, checking it out if you're ever in the area. Because as far as air and space museums go, it is – it's small compared mm-hmm. to, like, the – I guess the only other one I've really been to is uh, in Tucson, the Pima Air and Space Museum. But mm-hmm. even though it's smaller, it just – has you know artifact after artifact after artifact part of a solid rocket booster what was there oh there's a v2 rocket which apparently there's only like a few of them like still in the world so that's pretty cool so hold on so going back a second so you drove from like arizona to oklahoma mm-hmm. yeah i made it as far as uh amarillo the first day and then so that was two days ago and then yesterday I drove from Amarillo to Oklahoma City. And then today I plan on making it a little past St. Louis. And then the next day I'm going to make it to State College because I haven't been back to Penn State in years. And then after that, finally do the last drive home to New Jersey. So, <laughs> Wow. Cross-country trip. Crazy. I mean, it sounds yeah. like fun. It's a lot of driving, but I've actually always wanted to do it. So I can't mm. say that, you know, it just, it sounds like a fun idea. Um, and I've never gotten around to it, but I would, I would love to drive, especially just heading west because I haven't spent much time out west, you know. So just to get on the road, drive west and just keep going. It sounds fun to me, but it is, it is cool. Thing is, it takes so much time. So mm-hmm. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I really can only do this because, you know, I get the summer off. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, I would have to just fly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's, I, you know, I've got, my audiobook that I'm listening to is the Mueller Report, <laughs> so I'm just oh, wow. go, going through that and podcasts, so I, I really, like, 
I thought of it as a great time to kind of a great opportunity to go through my uh, podcast uh, backlog that had been piling up. So, yeah, plenty of time <laughs> to listen to stuff. <laughs> yeah. Good luck on your trip. Thanks. And next week we'll have Ben back, so he'll, he'll be back. And I think everyone at that point will be back in their respective homes <laughs> and we'll have a normal show. But uh, for now, let's move on to this weekend spaceflight history. And uh, so what was that clue again? This was the clue that I was struggling to say. And so it is... Fingers crossed. The clue was Sean Probst's gelato. Sean Probst's gelato. Or as gelato. I <laughs> as I phrased it, the gelato of Sean Probst. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why. I just have trouble with that Probst's. last name. But <laughs> well, the, yeah. that's like four consonants next to each other: B, S, and a T, and an S. Probst's. Mm, there's a lot going on there. But yeah, we've got. I, I still managed to push through, and we've got three winners. So congratulations, yeah. uh, Chevy Tercosi, Peter Young, and Tim Broadbent. Because I'm a noob at uh, this week in spaceflight history, if anybody else uh, answered uh, not on Twitter or the Reddit, the subreddit, then I apologize, and I'm sure we'll give you a shout-out next week if you <laughs> point that out. But uh, congratulations to those uh, three for getting it. So that was the clue, Sean Probst Gelato. And there was a little kind of mix-up in the date and year. And so whether or not you answered... There was the event on July 2nd, 1990, which is when the ESA spacecraft Giotto did an Earth flyby that then on July 10th, 1992, sent it to uh, the comet 26P Grig Skellerjot. And so whether or not you answered with the July 2nd, 1990 Earth flyby or the July 10th, 1992 uh, comet flyby, both were correct. And everybody seemed to have recognized uh, that. Yeah, so the, you know, this was a really cool uh, space mission. It was part of the uh, Halley Armada. So, right, the five uh, probes sent to go check out Halley's Comet uh, in 1986 when uh, it was coming into the central part of the solar system. And so uh, Giotto was named after Giotto di Bone, who was a, uh, an Italian painter who uh, had painted Halley, uh, Halley's Comet back in the day. And uh, the other uh, space probes on uh, the Halley Armada, where uh, the Soviets uh, contributed uh, the Vega 1 and 2 spacecraft, and uh, the Japanese contributed uh, a pair uh, called Sakigake and Suisei. And uh, while NASA didn't launch anything, it had the uh, ICE spacecraft out there. And so uh, we had talked about that on a previous This Week in Spaceflight History mm -hmm. event talked about not, not that long ago, earlier this year. Giotto was launched on an Ariane 1 on July 2nd, 1985 from Kourou. It had 10 instruments on board, a narrow angle camera, three mass spectrometers, dust detectors, a photopolarimeter, and a plasma payload that included a magnetometer along with other instruments. And, you know, it's, it's, primary mission was, of course, right, Halley's Comet. And so uh, while some of the uh, spacecraft kind of viewed Halley's uh, Comet from a distance, Giotto came in really close, uh, 596 kilometers at its closest approach. And there were some worries about, you know, all the commentary all the commentary debris that was going to strike it. And so, I mean, it had a Whipple shield and they prepared for it, but it was still going to be pretty intense. And in fact, one impact from the comet was enough to send it uh, tumbling. And so that was a uh, almost the end of uh, Giotto because as it was tumbling around, um, it didn't have its antenna pointed at Earth anymore. And so we were no longer able to communicate with it, but it was able to sa stabilize itself and uh, continue with its mission. So this was in uh, 1986 and so it went to sleep. 
And then, uh, you know, a few years later, it was woken up uh, on July 2nd in 1990 for this uh, Earth flyby to send it to a uh, another comet, uh, 26P Griggs-Skeller, yep. which is named after uh, John Grigg, who was a New Zealander who uh, first discovered the comet in 1902, and uh, John Francis Skelliup, who was an Australian that rediscovered it in 1922. How do you rediscover it? <laughs> I, I was going to say, I guess um, maybe uh, whether or not it's a long period comet or a short period comet, right? Because if something's coming from, let's say, the Oort cloud, when it comes in once, you know, we're not going to see it again for thousands of years. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the fact that this came in after 20 years, I guess. Oh, okay. He discovered that it was a short period kind of repeater right. as opposed okay. to a one and done. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So that is his actual contribution. So he, so he basically confirmed the period of the comet. And of course, that is something that's very much worth knowing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was like wondering how you rediscover that's a good it. Point. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and so this is a, uh, it's an interesting one. Um, I didn't know this, but apparently, um, it comes close enough to Jupiter that it has had its orbit significantly changed even on like historical timescales. And so mm -hmm. it's, perihelion has changed from 0.77 AU in the 1700s to 1.12 AU in 1999, which was the most recent figure I saw. Okay. So that is a yeah. like a 50% change almost, right? And so that's pretty wild. And um, as for uh, where the clue comes in, so the, the Sean Probst gelato, gelato was referring to Giotto, you know, it sounds like Giotto, uh, gelato. Yeah. And, and as for the Sean Probst, also, you know, jump forward a minute or two if you, uh, don't want spoilers about a novel, uh, Seven Eves. Uh, so there's your spoiler warning. And so this is a, uh, a novel by Neil Stevenson. And I had to look up the plot. Ben, you know, uh, has read this, uh, or listen to the audiobook. I'm not sure. <laughs> He's a big audiobook guy, so I'm not sure which. But um, I had to look up the plot, and so to kind of give the most bare plot without revealing too much, uh, the upshot is is that because of some problems with the moon, vaporizing, I think, <laughs> humanity needed to build what they call the cloud arc. And so this was going to be a space station that some humans would be able to get off the surface of the Earth and survive in. You know, it's a, kind of a classic uh, motif, I guess, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. And so, yeah, and there's a character in there named Sean Probst, who is a billionaire who's kind of supposed to invoke Elon Musk and, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, a billionaire space guy, and recognize that it would need a lot of water for propellant to keep it from deorbiting. And so to get all that water... He basically set off to a comet named Greg Skeleton. And so Greg Skeleton is kind of a play on the comet Greg Skellerup. That's where that comes in. This was a hybrid clue, right? The You, you contributed the gelato part of it, <laughs> and Ben contributed the uh, Sean Probes part. <laughs> yeah, because so. I just thought, oh, gelato sounds kind of like gelato, and, you know, comets are big snowballs. So, okay, I see a, an idea there. Yeah, and apparently it was a good enough clue that we got some winners. So yeah, yeah. it worked out. So. Yeah, so it was it was a successful uh, spacecraft. Its magnetometer uh, took the first measurements ever when it flew by uh, Greg Skellerup of uh, a solar wind uh, interacting with a low gas producing mm -hmm. comet. 
And so uh, kind of a big deal. And then after that flyby, you know, they just put it to sleep again. And that's where it is today. So the clue for next week, I didn't contribute to this one. So I have no idea what this is about, actually. Um, I didn't bother to check. So I'm completely in the dark. So um, <laughs> I guess you came up with this clue. I did. So this may be an absolute disaster, but we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> so the clue for next week in 1980 is... Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club in 1980. It could be anything, but I feel like it's something to do with like some kind of like an organizational thing. That's just kind of the vibe I'm getting. I'll be interested <laughs> I, to know I if I'm right. I can't say anything. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's next week in 1980. Welcome to the club. All right. Well, if anyone out there thinks they know what that's about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. First up in the news, the Orion abort test. Uh, that was successful. So this was kind of cool. This is this is the second abort test. The first one was on the pad. This is, you know, the in-flight one. And, like, obviously, in order to save on rockets, they just put this on a little peacekeeper. I don't know if it was the actual missile or just a motor, because I believe it's just a motor. I don't know what uh, the main body was. Do you know what that was? Because no, I, very... I haven't seen that anywhere, but I, I assumed it was just the motor as well. Yeah, so they built something to actually house the motor which I also assume is a solid rocket motor, right? Because, I mean, they called it a motor, which usually means it's a solid, plus it's, you know, a peacekeeper, right. which I believe uses mm -hmm. all solids. So, yeah, a very simple system. Yeah, yeah and like Stan's pointing out, they, they had to uh, modify it a bit, and so they... Uh... Uh, fared it out to the Orion diameter to get it to fit. Yeah, so. and uh, yeah, so this launched uh, or this uh, this lifted off from the Cape to an altitude of nine point five kilometers, so not too high. But um, at that point, it, it was up to about Mach one point three, so just a little over Mach one. And then they activated the abort sequence, and you have your um the initial pull away. I guess that's the term. I don't know what you call it, but you know the escape of the launch escape. Right, um, right. <laughs> the escaping. <laughs> the escaping part, and then it tumbles end over end, and but that's actually how it's supposed to work because you have these motors. You have an additional set of the abort motors, which just are there to reorient the mm -hmm. capsule. And then the entire escape tower reignites a separate set of motors and then uh, it separates. So that all took place, right. you know, within just a matter of seconds. And the actual Orion was not an Orion. It was more or less just a... I guess just like a mass simulator. I'm not sure what it was. If they, if it was some kind of like a steel capsule, and then it was just filled with weight. As I, uh, as you mentioned that, um, there was a, it's a, it was a boilerplate, and uh, that Stafford Air and Space Museum had a mm. actual Apollo boilerplate sitting outside. So even before you go inside the museum, there's a boilerplate there, which is fun. But okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically, it was just right. It's just a, a weighted um, thing that had the kind of same. Uh, aerodynamic properties mm -hmm. as an Orion, but otherwise, you know, just the data recorders and I wouldn't assume really anything else other than just matching the mass. One interesting thing about the abort motor is that I guess there's always some variation because you have like this solid grain propellant because this was supposed to have, uh, the abort sequence was supposed to happen at 55 seconds after launch, but instead they did it for 50 seconds because this was a slightly more mm. powerful motor. It was actually called a hot motor. I've never heard that term before, but they had to do the abort at 50 seconds because if not, then I guess it, it would have gotten, you know, a little bit higher, a little bit faster, Mach mm -hmm. 1.5 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, because because they wanted to do this at uh, they wanted to board at max Q, right? Right. To just plan for the worst contingency, and so uh, that's presumably why they picked that time. Yeah. 
I think we discussed it briefly last week when we were talking about this, like coming up that there were no parachutes, obviously, because this is just a mass mm-hmm. simulator. So you don't need parachutes on this. So you have these 12 data recorders and they were just ejected into the ocean. So they just kind of fell and I guess just plopped into the ocean. I don't know how you recover them. Like if, if they have like little flotation devices, I mean, they must, but you just like spit out 12 separate little things and they mm-hmm. all fall into the ocean and then they're collected later. That seems kind of yeah. strange to me, but I had the idea of just like a, uh, like a, a black box on a plane. You know what I mean? Just, uh, yeah. I, we, we have the technology to do that, you know? <laughs> and so whatever, however they f- figured out how to get black boxes to survive, uh, you know, I know that they have a way of locating it. And of course, it's built in a very durable fashion so that it can survive any kind of an impact. But does it sink or does it float? I'm assuming it must float because if it sinks, then that can be a lot harder to yeah. recover. Infinitely more difficult. Yeah. And yeah, I guess the mass simulator, the Orion just slammed into the ocean at high speed and fell into a thousand yeah, pieces. There wasn't that good of uh, I think I saw one video where you could see the little splash way out in the distance. But um, did you see the video of the peacekeeper slamming down as well? Uh, no, I don't think I have seen that. That was a big splash. That was really cool footage. If uh, I, I recommend checking it out, <laughs> that was really fun to watch. But yeah, apparently they had tested the parachutes, you know, so often that they were just like, yeah, let's really just focus on the uh, launch abort system specifically, get it away from the peacekeeper, and then you know, okay, that was a success. And it turned out to be a success. It did kind of what it was supposed to do. One interesting thing to take note of, I just came across a video of the first Orion pad abort test. That was nine years ago, 2010. I don't recall it being that long ago, but time does fly. (laughs) Was that nine years ago? Really? That's taking a little little bit longer than I think we had anticipated. But think about what you were doing nine years ago. (laughs) Yeah. But what what are they doing? So it's been like nine years and they're just getting around to the second. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this, the whole space launch system is taking its time. So I guess that's not too surprising, but oh well. I don't think they need to necessarily rush uh, given that the, uh, the rocket itself is, you know, Mm -hmm. at the, in the state that it is right now. Yeah. Well, congratulations to NASA for a successful test. Yeah. And if they have any more tests, let's hope it's not another nine years before they get around to them. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. Let's move on to something that's actually progressing fairly quickly, all things considered, and that is Starlink. So not a huge story here, but uh, about like a month ago, SpaceX had launched their first 60 Starlink satellites, and these were kind of still for testing purposes. They had begun to raise their orbit to the 550-kilometer altitude because that is the final destination for them. But um, what's interesting is that they've actually lost communication with three of them. I don't think that SpaceX knows why, but uh, they will deorbit within five years passively. So they were initially deployed at around 440 kilometers and are headed to 550. But then there's also two other satellites that are being intentionally deorbited. But I think that those, I believe that those are first going to climb to the 550 kilometer target orbit. I think that the idea is to see, you know, like if you have to deorbit, can you do that from the operational orbit? Because that's where they're going to be. So, and if they do that, I'm wondering how long does that take? Like, do they give it just enough of a boost so that it happens within a couple of years or much faster? Or do they burn it? Yeah, all the way, all the way back in actively. See, that might be a good question for kind of space geeks, but maybe not a frequently asked question. <laughs> you know, I mean, I imagine you know, at five hundred and fifty kilometers, that's still going to be what, like a ten year, you know, to passively deorbit. Mm-hmm. So 
maybe they do give it a nudge and it becomes a few years until they deorbit. Yeah, because if at 440 kilometers you're looking at five years to deorbit, then 550, you know, these things like very rapidly go up in terms of how long it takes to yeah, deorbit. Yeah, it's not linear yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, it could be 10 years or even more than that. So that's that's cool though. I, so I, I like that, you know, they're really testing kind of everything with mm-hmm. that. You know what I mean? Like bring it to the target orbit and then take them down because, you know, if that was an issue, you'd want to know about it before you have thousands of these up there, right? Mm-hmm. So. All 60 satellites, I believe, are just for testing because they don't have the ability to communicate with one another. So I imagine that, you know, there's mm-hmm. quite a bit of ground communication and they're testing some other mm-hmm. systems. But um, I mean, if you recall, there was a tweet by Elon and he had said that there's the small possibility that none of these will even work, that, you know, they might all fail because they have a lot of new technology. So it's still very much a test bed. He's been very upfront about that. Yeah. But I guess the remaining 45 satellites, they're up there just to see how they perform over a given period of time. And you just want a large enough sample size because you want to see if, you know, something goes wrong. You want there to be the chance for that to happen. It's possible that like nothing will happen to one satellite, but it's much more likely that something will happen to 60 or, you know, a couple hundred. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you get your data. So I guess that's Mm -hmm. sort of the rationale and that's why they're doing it. One other side story, and I guess I had heard about this, but I'd sort of forgotten, but Jeff Bezos has filed with the FCC for his own constellation for satellite internet, and that's being called Kuiper. And he Mm. filed with the FCC on the 4th of July, and that's for 3,236 satellites. So we have Starlink, we have OneWeb, we have Kuiper. Uh, Telesat... And oh, yeah. LeoSat. Yeah, we have Starlink, OneWeb, Kuiper, Kepler, Telesat. I'm wondering, like... And Sam's saying there's a couple smaller Chinese ones in the works, too. So, all together, what are we looking at? Like, at least thirty to 40,000 satellites just for internet? It's got to mm-hmm. be somewhere around there. That's a lot if, if these actually pan through. that That's a lot of launches, too, to get them up there. I mean, yeah. right? SpaceX can do at least 60 at a time, so we know that... You know, that still is a lot of launches. It's an interesting thought because, you know, how we were talking about, like, when they had first launched those 60 satellites, how that might make some astronomers a little bit upset. And it's not going to be as bad as we thought. But then again, with this many satellites, it it very well might be (laughs) just because... Mm I mean, we're not talking about one constellation. We're talking about, you know, four or five of them. Yeah, some of these calculations are correct. If there's a perpetual, like I had mentioned on that episode, if there, if there's a, if you're always seeing some satellite in the sky at all times, then that's just, uh, that's just sad, I think. Because you'll never <laughs> be able to just see a nice static sky. And, and to test it, because, you know, a lot of people were talking, well, it's kind of like that with airplanes, but, you know, not really. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of airplanes you see in the sky, but it's not that there's always an airplane in the sky. And so mm-hmm. to test that on the way uh, walking to my office for recording that episode, I just purposely kept an eye out and I didn't see a, an airplane on my 10 minute walk. And, you know, this is in a city with an Air Force base there in a major airport. And so Mm -hmm. you can enjoy kind of a beautiful, like if you go hiking or something, you can enjoy a beautiful scene with, you know, out without Mm -hmm. planes kind of getting in your way. And we might not get that opportunity if there's tens and tens of thousands of satellites in the sky, which I don't know. I don't know what'll happen. I'm not sure how this will end up panning out, but it might just have to be the new normal. I don't know. Yeah, we'll find out. 
let's do some short and sweet. We just got two because there's just two of us, and why not? Uh, so what's the first one? <laughs> first up, uh, ExoMars 2020 suffers parachute problem. A May 28th end-to-end performance test resulted in damage to ExoMars's two main parachutes. The first parachute to deploy suffered multiple tears prior to reaching its maximum load, and the second chute also suffered a tear. The test took place via a high-altitude balloon above the Swedish Space Corporation's Esrange test site in northern Sweden. While this does present a setback, project officials say they have enough time to correct the problem for launch next year. Next up, uh, Discover is in safe mode. So on June 27th, the Discover or Deep Space Climate Observatory spacecraft, which is positioned at the Earth-Sun L1 Lagrange point, uh, that was put into safe hold to resolve an issue with its station-keeping systems. There have been several prior instances of putting Discover into safe hold. However, this is the longest so far. Previous safe holds lasted only a few hours and were hypothesized to be the result of cosmic race strikes on the spacecraft's electronics. There is no word yet on when Discover will resume its operations. So actually, I did put this in, but one question I have. So this is to mm. uh, resolve the station-keeping system. So it's at the L1 Lagrange point. Does that mean that this could actually fall out of orbit? Because, and I think that that can happen kind of quickly, right? It's very unstable. And so if those systems are somehow shut down, and I don't know if they are, completely but it has to maintain its position and that's exactly what they're trying to fix so could this thing like drift away i don't know i'm not sure yeah because l1 is not a good place to be if you can't keep your orbit there i mean it's it's by definition literally at like a point where it's balanced by earth and sun's gravity so it's kind of a toss-up i'd imagine which gravity well it falls into i've heard it described as being at the top of a gravitational hill you know and like you could just roll Mm -hmm. to either side i don't know that's kind of concerning okay stand by we're looking at it Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have one, I guess, a question and or comment from Andrew Zdanowitz. Zdanowitz. This was about that drone on Titan that they're sending in 20, mm. 2035, is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's when it gets there. Yeah. I, a decade and a half from now. Um, and so the question was, why exactly a drone architecture? And I think specifically that, like, not a helicopter, but a drone. And it seemed to me that the question was also, like, why drones in general? And that actually mm-hmm. is a good question that I've asked myself. And I don't know exactly, except that it must have something to do with that they're just more stable than a traditional helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Andrew was highlighting how, you know, helicopters have a long history, right? they been around much longer than drones have, so we understand them, you know, I guess better. That they are more, you know, effective at lifting loads and flying. And uh, so why not just, if everybody's interested in, you know, playing it safe, then why aren't helicopters, you know, playing it safe? Because again, we've had them for so long. We kind of worked out the kinks and bugs. They're very well understood. And it was brought up in the mission proposal for Dragonfly that they... Uh, specifically, uh, well, I could read the, here's a quote from the relevant section, um, quote, in contrast to helicopter flight, multi-rotor flight with differential throttling affected purely electrically by motor speed control is mechanically simple and therefore lends itself to planetary application. So my guess is that Dragonfly is a, you know, it's, it's swinging for the fences, right? I mean, it's a giant drone that you're going to go have flying on a distant moon out in the outer part of the solar system. So really 
go as mechanically simple as possible. And also, you know, even if the helicopter would be more effective at lifting, you know, a particular weight, that's not so much an issue with Titan, right? Where I think the number is something like it's 40 times easier yeah. to fly in Titan than, I mean, the, the, the famous, uh, you know, famous or infamous kind of factoid that people love to point out about Titan is that if you kind of just, you know, strapped wings onto your arms, you could self-propel yourself. That's how, yeah. uh, you know, with the lower gravity and the thicker, colder atmosphere, um, you know, four and a half times denser than the Earth's. And so, yeah, I think the fact that they could get away with a simpler drone design is kind of why they opted for that over a helicopter. But then we had the kind of follow-up question that how come Mars's helicopter scout not is in a drone and is an actual helicopter. And I guess because in Mars, that's much harder to fly. Tenuous atmosphere. Um, you don't save as much on gravity as you do going to uh, Titan. And so I guess for Mars, they really wanted the more efficient lift generator. It certainly looks like what it seems to me that if you have like one or two very large blades, then you can generate more lift than with four small ones, you know, because you can get more surface area with like one big rotor on top than four small ones, I think. I don't know. I mean, that's just how it looks when I look at it. But yeah, on the Mars copter, you have two counter-rotating blades essentially stacked on top of each other. And yeah, they're very big compared to the little box that is the actual body of you know the helicopter so right but i mean that's what you need yeah because mars is a very tenuous atmosphere it's it's less i think it's what less than one percent yeah pressure yeah wise, yeah i mean i still find it amazing that you can fly anything at all on mars like i i would not have thought that mm -hmm. that could work but obviously it can but really hard to do like mm -hmm. no fun flying on mars yeah. so that that's that's why yeah basically like you kind of had said this the Mars helicopter is basically, it's almost all blades and very little, you know, body of a vehicle. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So I guess there you go. Good, uh, good food for thought and great question from Andrew. So thank you. Let's move on then to upcoming launches or up upcoming spaceflight events. But I think it, it really is just two launches. So uh, we got one coming up on July 12th, right? Yeah. On uh, July 12th, we've got a Proton M. They blocked the M03 upper stage, taking Spectre RG uh, space mission, which is a Russian-German observatory class. Uh, it's a suite of X-ray telescopes. We talked about it before. This had been uh, delayed. And so this will be taking place on July 12th at 1231 UTC with an instantaneous launch window and will be launched out of Baikonur Cosmodrome. The next launch will be on July 14th, and that is a GSLV Mark III, and that's launching Chandrayaan-2. So yeah, this is that lunar lander and rover, and I think it'll, yeah, it'll have something that will stay in orbit. So this is the whole package. So um, I guess after China just did this, and now we have India doing it, so everyone's getting into the game. So the actual lander will be collecting moonquake data and some other things. But I think that's interesting, moonquakes. I find those fascinating, just the idea that the mm -hmm. moon shakes at all because it looks like a big <laughs> a big dead rock. But it's not entirely. But yeah, so a lander and a rover. This mission will be launching on July 14th at 2121 UTC. That's an instantaneous launch window. I guess, unsurprisingly, if you're sending something to the moon, instantaneous launch window at 2121 UTC. And that's launching from the Satish Dawan Space Center. And it's launching from their second launch pad. So I'm assuming that that will be broadcast. I certainly hope so. Uh, it'll be cool to watch. It'll be a decent hour here in the States, if you're in the States. And uh, I guess that is it, huh? Yeah, I mean, and also Apollo 11 anniversary stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like sure. Everything, you know, related to that. But 
not really an event. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that means it's time to debut the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. p.m. 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Borbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody.